Uh, g'day, it's great to be with you. If you'd like to look at the letter of 2 Thessalonians, the part we're looking at today is in that outline that you've got. How about if I read the first little bit then pray, then we'll try and derive some nutrition out of this letter. 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you brothers and sisters as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's uh, speak with God. Great God, it's a a good thing to be able to pull aside and having spent uh, some of the morning exploring the creation that you've made, the world that you've placed us in, uh, we thank you now for a chance to focus our attention upon not the creation but you yourself. And Father, we pray that you would overlook all of our foolishness and unworthiness and that you would speak to us through your word in a way that would make a difference. And we pray this, Father, not just that we may enjoy this time, but so that as a result of all this, your son would be honoured and pleased. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, I'd like to ask you a complicated question with a fairly straightforward answer, okay? If I was really clever, I'd work out a way to make this question clearer. So, see if you can follow this question. If you were a dictator or the ruler of an authoritarian government, What areas of Christian belief would you not want people to hear about? told you it was a complicated question. So you're running a country and you allow Christians to exist. But what sort of stuff that Christians believe would you want them not to hear about or not to think about? Would it be the fact that God made us? Would it be the fact that Jesus loves us and died for us? Would it be the ethical teaching of Jesus? What stuff would you not want people to think about? Well, I thought about this question because I was reading a book called Jesus in Beijing, which looks at the history of Christianity in uh, China on the mainland. And uh, we're told what the government orders its preachers not to preach. In in China, as you might know, there are two sorts of churches. Uh, Since 1949, they reckon the largest ever growth of Christianity in any country has happened in the People's Republic of China. Quite extraordinary. They threw all the missionaries out in about 49. And what began was a a fairly rigorous oppression of the church in spite of official freedom. There are two sorts of churches. There's what's known as a three-self church, which is an authorised Christian church. It's like the Anglican church. It's got some good churches and some appalling churches. And it's got the underground church, which is the church that refuses to recognise in any way a need to answer to the government with with what it does. And in the Bible colleges of those churches, some of you will know, There are courses like how to jump out of two-storey windows and not hurt yourself because they need to know how to get away in case the police at times will try to break up their meeting. They didn't teach me that in either my first or second time at Barber College. Must have gone to the wrong ones. But when it comes to the three self-church, the government has made it clear that there's one particular bit of Christian teaching that they will not allow the preachers to preach on. And it's a very strange topic. It's the topic which is the main theme of 2 Thessalonians, which is why I raise it. The thing that they don't want the authorised preachers to preach on in church is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wouldn't have struck me that was a problem. 
But they've made it very clear that that is a forbidden area of Christian teaching. The fact that Jesus Christ will return again is something which these preachers are not allowed to preach. on. When they do, they get in trouble from the government. And yet 2 Thessalonians, the book we're going to look at, which is probably the second oldest of all the books we've got in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians is probably the earliest book we have. 2 Thessalonians is probably the second earliest or the second oldest. You can read about how the good news got to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. It's worth a read. Uh, the apostles arrived there. It's a, it's a beautiful little city, still is, on the, on the eastern seaboard of Greece. Travel far enough you get to Turkey across the water. It's at a crossroads of a couple of main roads. And the, the, uh, Paul and his mates get there. They begin preaching for about two or three weeks and it goes okay. Suddenly a number of people become Christian. The kingdom of God invades a number of lives. New life comes and so does trouble. And there's a riot in the streets. There's tremendous tumult. They're taken before the courts. And in the end at night time, the baby Christian church smuggles Paul and the other guys out. And they head off to Berea, then to Athens. And when they're in Athens, they're so worried about this church a group of baby Christians, some of whom were Jews, so they knew something about the Old Testament, some of whom had come from out-and-out paganism, so they knew nearly nothing about God. They become Christians. They're only Christians for a couple of weeks with no Sunday school background or anything like that. And they're not just being Christians, but they are being persecuted violently, physically, dangerously. And the apostle sends Timothy back to hear how they're going. Timothy comes back to Athens. Paul can't believe uh, the joy that he has because the Christians are still going on. He writes them a letter, 1 Thessalonians. That gets delivered. Bit of argy-bargy back and forth travelling. Paul moves on to Corinth. He sends the second letter. That's this one. And the issue we're going to see over the next three weeks is to do with the return of Jesus, what difference it makes, what we should believe about it, what we shouldn't believe about it, and how we live until he returns. Well, verses 1 and 2 will tell us about how this new life arrived and continues. Uh, how does it arrive someone uh, goes from darkness to light, from death to life, from being in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son? Verses 1 and 2 will give us the clues to that. And there's two key operatives. One is human and the other is divine. So verses 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just. This is the guy who's writing the letter. This is the little team that brought the gospel to them. The good news, life, the miraculous invasion of the kingdom of God comes through ordinary little human beings. Little people like the Apostle Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. Famous in history, but in their own minds weak, easily misled, easily depressed. So the message comes through ordinary people in the same way as it came to us. Through ordinary people. And miraculously, and sometimes very difficult to believe, in the same way as God can bring this all-important message into people's lives through us. But he does it with us. So the next thing he speaks about is not just that the message originally came through these guys, but it continues to come, and so grace continues to move from God. It comes through humans, verse 2, it comes through God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Christianity is obviously a human thing. There are humans involved in teaching, bringing the message, encouraging. At the same time, God, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. Their life started because of the grace of God. God is working with and through and sometimes in spite of his people. So in the next chapter, in verse uh, 14, it says this. It was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So here what the Apostle says is through our Gospel as they're speaking the good news of Jesus, it's God himself who called. And as God will strengthen the Thessalonians, Paul hopes, through this letter, it's really got to be God's grace coming to them as well. Both things are working hand in glove. And the evidence of God working in someone through both humans and through the grace of God is that he, um, in, as in chapter 1 verse 10, referring back to their visit, because our testimony to you was believed. When a person hears the message of Jesus, finally the penny drops, they see their need, they see who Christ is, they place their faith into Jesus, they trust him as their Lord and King and as their Saviour. That, that's the great outwork of the divine and the human working perfectly together. And you get this tiny little church. It's in all sorts of trouble, but one of the things to notice about this little church is the Apostle Paul is unbelievably excited by these guys, probably more excited by the Thessalonians than maybe any other church. Because when he launches into his thanksgiving in verse 3 and 4, he adds a couple of little phrases that aren't in any other letter. You'll know if you read through Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, well, not Galatians, all the other letters. Paul will say, you know, Paul writing to these guys, something about God. Then he says, I thank my God. And he talks about why he thanks, what he's thankful for. Except in Galatians where he's so angry and so worried about them that he goes, Paul, da, 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 da. I am astounded that you should so quickly be forsaken. And on he goes, right? But in this one, it's not that he forgets to thank God, but he adds a whole lot of stuff. He's doubly thankful for these guys. This is kind of like Paul's model church. He's really excited by this. So it would be interesting to work out whether or not the little church that you might belong to or the moderately little church if you're in a big one. Um, you know, that if the little fellowship that you belong to, whether or not it's the sort of congregation where, where, where the Apostle Paul would go, I am especially wonderfully thankful for you. Well, let's look at the, um, the words in verse 3. I'll emphasise the words that aren't in any of the other thanksgivings. We must always give thanks to God for your brothers and sisters, as is right. So there are two words that express his deep sense of obligation. He doesn't, he's not just thankful, but he says, for me not to be thankful, for me to not thank God for you would just be wrong, wrong, wrong. So he says, we must, as is right. Recently my email got fixed up by a friend after months of having you know, 20 emails arrive, choose which three I'd read and then the machine would crash, which is a very minor bit of suffering, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the suffering in the face of the earth, a minor email problem. But that goes on for a few months and various people suggesting how it should be fixed and not working. When my friend finally came and spent hours reloading all the software into the computer and it worked, I'd send three or four emails off, which is a new thing to friends, and, and then I'd send one off to Chris. Mate, thanks so much, you're, you're a marvel. And then I'd send them three or four more, and then I'd send them, oh, mate, that's fantastic, you're, you're a legend. And, and uh, all this stuff. I'd send one to his wife telling him what a great husband she had. Because <laughs> I had this overwhelming sense of thanksgiving. That's pathetic, isn't it? You know, I was, given a, I was given a motor car once when I was 20, which enabled me to do ministry. And I remember just this deep sense of thankfulness, because the guy who gave it to me was quite poor. He's fitter and turner. Had to work a whole lot of double shifts. And so he gave me this car when I was at Moore College the first time. Fantastic. It lived until I got out, and then it died and went to heaven. It was a great little car. <laughs> and it was hard to stop thanking this guy for his kindness, because it was costly. And the Apostle saying it's like this for him. There's something so wonderful happening amongst this little group of Christians that he says, I simply would just be wrong not to be thankful to God. Look at what it is. It's quite wonderful. Quite ordinary in a sense, I hope. We must always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
It's the fact that their faith and their love are growing. They're not stationary. They're not saying, oh yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I built my faith in Jesus five years ago. I started to love the brotherhood and sisterhood a few years ago. But the apostle says, no, 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 your faith is growing abundantly. That is, their capacity to trust Jesus is increasing. Their willingness to rely upon him. It's interesting for you to think perhaps over you know, in a boring lecture this afternoon perhaps or perhaps on your way home or eating high-class biscuits or whatever, uh, an afternoon tea here. What, what does growing faith look like in the first year, in the 20th year? Um, it, it may well have something to do with obedience, I think. Because in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, he'll talk about the faith that works. But it might have to do with more love. Maybe you see if you've got more faith because you have more love. Galatians 5. What matters is the faith that works through love. Or maybe it's that you're less anxious about things. You're simply learning in all the various areas of human life, whether it be our relationships or our career or our studies or our families or whatever it is, we're learning to trust God that in the end he doesn't forget me. He won't allow any real evil to happen to his children. Anyhow, their faith is growing and so is their love. In fact, you can see it in the English. It's kind of an odd little construction in the original language. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's kind of clumsy and it's stressing the fact that there's a whole lot of individual acts of love going on. Just, it's not some sort of undefined lovingness, but there's just acts of love and kindness and mercy happening more and more in this congregation. Those two things, if they're happening in any fellowship you're a part of, are a reason to be really deeply thankful. They're an evidence of the Spirit's work. No one trusts Jesus without the Holy Spirit's work. No one loves in this way, where you love not just your friends, those you're similar to, but you love just those in the family. They don't do that without the Spirit of God. They are the two great marks that cause this guy to be deeply, deeply thankful. 1 Corinthians 13, as many of you know, is not just a nice reading to have at your wedding, although it's not a bad reading to have at your wedding, but it's a thoroughly shocking statement that it matters not how much wisdom, knowledge, gifts, strength, talents you have. If you don't have love, you're nothing. Not you're a mildly defected Christian, you are nothing. If you're not marked by patience, kindness, gentleness, Right? Not keeping a record of wrongs. In the end, that's what it's about. So that's the thing that makes this guy really excited. And you know why? It's all happening according to verse 4. Not when they're away on Ancon, and who would ever think of missing Ancon unless you, you know, unless you had to. It's not when you're away on some magnificent spiritual experience. But it's while they're just living at home, going to church, and being brutally persecuted. While they're baby Christians. Verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. So he thanks God for them and he brags about them to other churches. Probably uses them as some sort of a role model, what they can be. For your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and your afflictions, you are enduring. So all this growth is happening, not when they're on some sort of ashram where they can go and be peaceful, but in the middle of real hardship and misunderstanding and difficulties because they've become Christians. And that's what makes him excited because it's too easy for those of us who don't suffer much to hear, for example, about the church in countries in some parts of China and other parts of the world which is suffering off and on badly and go, yeah, that's what happens when you suffer, you grow. That's not true. Often enough when people suffer persecution, they give it up. And that's certainly according to Jesus in Mark 4 where about the seed growing 
one of the things that destroys the seed is persecution because of the word and some people will just die. Persecution, hardship, can cause you to grow. If you continue, it makes you much stronger, healthier, clearer. But some people, when they reach hardship because of Jesus, will pack it in. They just don't think they need this. Life is hard enough. I thought Jesus would just make me happy. But actually, since I've become a Christian, there's more hardship sometimes. And these guys keep growing in faith and love in the middle of it. And verse 5 suggests that uh, this suffering for the Christians is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I would have thought it was the opposite, wouldn't you? I think most of us think, hang on, hang on. You mean because I've become a Christian and now I'm suffering, that's an evidence of God's good judgment? This is a good decision by God? This is something I should thank him for? I don't think so. I think in our guts most of us think, hang on, if I put my faith in Jesus Christ, if I'm on his side in a world that chooses to forget him, if my commitment is to him and I'm sacrificing for him, I ought to be looked after. I ought to be blessed. I ought to have at least a minimum sort of level of happiness, not hardship, sickness, persecution, misunderstanding. But the Bible will consistently say that when you suffer because you're Christian, and in our culture it probably won't be death at the moment, but it will be you know, just a, a misunderstanding, a being sneered at, a sitting in a situation and your faith, and often your faith alone, will be publicly mocked or misunderstood and put down. Those sort of moments of awkwardness. Those times when you're made to feel a bit ashamed of yourself because you dare to believe such a weird set of beliefs as Christianity and, and you're not a good Buddhist like you should be. Not, um, if, if you're a genuine Buddhist, that's fine. But in the Western world, all this nonsense, everyone's into Buddhism. Buddhism in its own is a magnificently strong set of beliefs. But the way that my crowd go on about it, uh, it's ridiculous. Western journalists. Uh, you know, so you, well, Christianity, that's a weird religion. That's an unpleasant religion. And you'll feel it sometimes. And you'll feel the shame of having your faith put down. The Bible says, when you are persecuted in some way, rejoice. Jesus says in Matthew 5, put your dancing shoes on, put the music on and rejoice because it's the mark of belonging to him. Because you follow a Messiah, a Christ, a Saviour who was despised and rejected. Jesus says, they hated me without a cause, they will hate you without a cause. He says, don't be sad when you suffer, when they, when they misrepresent you, when they speak evil about you. Don't be sad, he says, rejoice. Because that's what has always happened to the people of God. We follow a crucified Messiah. It's weird, isn't it? But the Bible says, suffering's part of the game. Glory then, suffering now. So they're growing in the midst of all these hard times. Now the, the book continues on, not just with the picture of health, but with the missing ingredient, because what's missing? This is a you know, moment of participation. Faith, love, what's the third of the trinity that's missing? Hope. You know, you, you go, you look at 1 Thessalonians and it's faith, hope and love. All of that's faith, hope and love. They're the three great marks of the Christian. Hope's missing in 2 Thessalonians. Um, the reason for it is because I think he doesn't actually use the word hope, he simply talks about the hope, which is what the next few verses will be about. He goes on to this question of, uh, in the context of Christian suffering, verse 6, It is indeed just of God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. So he says, okay, he's been talking about God making good decisions. He says, it's just of God, he will repay with afflictions those who afflict you. One of the reasons why the Bible says just bear it patiently when you are unfairly treated because God will write the books. 
You can leave it with him. If you try to take revenge to right the wrong, you'll probably just add to the wrongness. Leave it with God. He will deal with those who afflict you. He will straighten things out. Very hard to do, isn't it? I know the very few times in my life where I think I've been seriously mistreated and misrepresented. Man, I want to get in there. I'm I'm an Old Testament guy at that point. I want to get in there and hammer people. Not Not that the Old Testament lets you do that, but that's my instinct. I want justice. I want it now. I want the wrong righted now. I want to form a Christian vigilante group and help some of these Christians across in other countries like the ones in in Sudan that have been butchered for 25 years publicly. The, the, the Prime Minister of the country has said he'll do it. Everyone sits around and does nothing. No, no. Leave it for God. He will repay. He'll repay those who have afflicted. Now, sometimes that happens this side of death. The Old Testament will speak about people digging pits and falling into their own pit. Sometimes that happens in the here and now, but often enough it doesn't. And the Bible wrestles with this. There are psalms like the famous Psalm 73 where they wrestle with why is it that wicked people seem to win and often the righteous and the gentle seem to lose. But basically what he says here is, when is this all going to happen? It is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It's not going to happen. Justice, righteousness will not actually win the day until that when, when Jesus returns. Well, actually, the word is revealed. Next week, we'll look at this, the idea of Jesus coming to be with us. Here, it speaks of Jesus being revealed, the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire. This is not like the first time, is it, with the, you know, the little baby. And the, this, is, this is majestic. This is the way Jesus repeatedly speaks of him coming back with the angels, with fire. Jesus will be revealed. Now, here's how, this is, this is the way it works. This is the way of thinking about the return of Jesus where the fact is, as you know from the teaching of Jesus, that he is here with us. It's always good to pause and remember that, you know, I, I see Michael Kwan there. Michael's here, that, that makes me happy. Right? Uh, I see other people, that makes me happy. But, but to stop in the ah, and Jesus is here as well. It's not, I don't pick that up through the same senses that I pick up Michael being here. I pick it up because of the promise of God. My eyes, mag, not mine in particular, but, you know, eyes are magnificent pieces of machinery, wonderful chance products of a mindless universe, etc., etc., or wonderfully designed by God, maybe just close to the truth, they pick up a, a very, very small range of the waves that can be picked up in various ways. There's an awful lot that my eyes can't see that are real. And some of the waves that they don't see can kill me. Only someone who doesn't think enough says, I only believe in what I see. That's just not true. I can't see Jesus, never have. But I know he's here. Why? Because he promises that he will never leave me. And I've never found him in any area to to lie. I know he's here. But I'm waiting for the day when when he will be revealed. When although he is present but invisible, he will be present and visible. In fact, inescapably visible, the Bible says. Every eye will see him, Jesus says. Picked up in the book of Revelation. Every eye will see him and some will call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on top of them to hide them from him. won't work. And for some it will be the most magnificent moments of our entire lives. He will be revealed. He's present. Strangely passive at times when you're suffering, it seems. Although suffering with us. But he'll be revealed. So, some of you have heard the story that I have three belly buttons. Um, 
that's not true. <laughs> well, let's imagine it was true. My three belly buttons are in the room with you, but you cannot see them because of the inadequacies of your eyes. But here is the moment of revelation. <laughs> I can see you reaching for the brown paper bags. I know you've, you've just had lunch. But see, I could, re- I could reveal to you the glory and you would go, my goodness, I didn't know in the room there was a person with three belly buttons. And that's, that's what it's saying here. Is Jesus is present. By the way, I don't have it. It's just an example, okay? Um, Jesus is present, but he's not revealed. But there is coming a day. And here's the, here's the part that's worth pondering. And Jesus says it could well be today. On the day that you least expect it. On a day when everything's going as normal. People are marrying, buying, selling. I'll, I will be revealed. I'll be made, made known. He will return, then justice will be done and he will do two main aspects, two main areas of work, 8 and 9 and then verse 10. For some, this is very bad news. For some, the day when Jesus Christ is revealed will be the single worst day in their entire life um, by a long shot. Verse 8 and 9, listen to what will happen when the king returns, when he is revealed. Verse 8, in flaming fire, what's he going to do? Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Let's stop there and just for a moment explore the bad news but the true news. There's, there's a group of people for whom this will be a day of vengeance. Vengeance is probably not a helpful translation here because in our, in our culture vengeance is almost always bad. It really is. It's just the idea of God judging, assessing, and paying back to people what they deserve. It's the imposing of a just punishment is what it is. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't do it. Leave it to him. Who? Who are the people who will suffer this? They are those who do not know God. And I take it the next description is the reason they don't. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's important as so often in the Bible, the problem God has with people is not because of what they do, it's because of what they don't do. That's consistently the teaching of Jesus. It's not that they've done nasty things. It's normally that they've not done things that God has commanded them to do. They don't know God. Now this is a serious failure if you're a human being. At the very heart of what God has in mind when he designed human beings is for people to know God. That is to be in a relationship with God. To be in a give and take where you listen. He speaks. He, he communicates with you. We listen. We, we moderate our lives. We change our lives. There's interaction going on in various ways. We're growing in our knowledge of God and therefore growing in our trust. These people don't know God. And it's a serious failure. It's like a father who doesn't love his children. It doesn't matter what he's like in other areas. If he's a father and doesn't love his children, he is a complete and utter loser. Right? He's basically twisted at the most central part of his life. A human being that doesn't know God is fundamentally faithfully flawed. Because that's what we're designed for, to live in God's world, in a world where God is communicating both through his creation and above all through his son, and not know him. That is not a small error. These people don't know God. So it's in a sense obvious that they won't be taken to be with him. And the reason they don't is because they do not obey the gospel. Now friends, with the gospel, you know what it is, it's this really shatteringly magnificent news about what God has done in Jesus. And then it finishes with an invitation. Come. Or a command is the other way. 
So in Acts 17, so Paul goes from Thessalonica to uh, Berea, then to Athens, and in that famous sermon in Acts 17, it finishes with, God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. So I'm asking you, would you like to repent? So whatever command you may think God has put on your life, he is commanding you today to repent, that is, to turn back to him, to begin to relate to him as he's revealed himself in Christ, the resurrected one. So these people have not obeyed the gospel, therefore they don't know God, therefore what happens? Two things. Verse 9. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Two things. The people who don't know God because they don't obey the gospel will experience eternal destruction. Uh, just to ponder those two words, to be destroyed is much uh, much more powerful than being damaged. It's to be ruined. It's to be wrecked. It's to be destroyed. And it's not for a moment. It's not that they're injured for a while. It's not a momentary destruction or a destruction for a season. It's eternal destruction. It's to be utterly torn to pieces, to be pulled limb from limb, as it were, spiritually. Eternal destruction. I remember once taking a car out to Sims Metal. In fact, I took a few cars out to Sims Metal that, uh, when we used to have second-hand cars and you'd drag them out there and you go and you'd see these ex-motor cars because they, were, they weren't cars anymore. They were about this thick. They'd been crushed and, and made a bit smaller. And to think that maybe a decade before, people would have actually done violent deeds to get their hands on those Toyota Corollas, whatever they were. And people would have been in love with their car more than, you know, more than perhaps their own girlfriend. Or, you know, they just loved these motor cars. And here they are now just utterly ruined forever. Not damaged. Taken to the best panel bit in the world, they can't be fixed. They're ruined. Right? And I remember thinking for a moment, I'd just become Christian, I was just thinking, I think that's, I don't know why I thought this, I thought that's, and I began to think that's what some of my friends would be like. Unless they return to God, they will ultimately be like those cars. Yes, kind of, you can see that they were cars once, but they've been totally destroyed, never to be resurrected as they were. And the second thing it talks about is that they will be separated from his glory. Many of you will know that in Jesus' uh, parables and stories of judgment, very often people will be brought before him and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, or depart from me into the everlasting fires. And this idea of seeing Jesus, sensing that he and all that he has uh, built in the new creation is all that you've been designed for and longed for, and then being told, leave, and to be cut off from him forever, and all that comes from him. That is one of the essential ways that Jesus speaks about, or what he speaks about is hell, isn't it? And um, it's to be cut off from him forever. What C.S. Lewis describes as an infinitely growing distance between the individual and God and the individual and any other humans. I take it that's what it is to be destroyed as a human, to be cut off from God and to be cut off from all other loving communion. And this is what the Bible calls elsewhere hell. And hell's a very difficult reality. Uh, many of you will have heard, it'd be hard not to have heard about these ridiculous, tragic ads that Australia's made to convince people to come here. The best punchline we could come up I mean, why wouldn't you come to a country where the best thing they can work out to say is, where the bloody hell are you? Oh, sign me up. Right? What a country of geniuses. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so anyhow, there's been all this offence going on. Some people have been offended by the word bloody. I'm frankly, I'm, I think it's just tragic that we've used the word hell like that. 
They would never say, where the bloody Nagasaki are you? Where the bloody Hiroshima are you? Where the bloody Auschwitz are you? Where the bloody Belsen are you? You can't make jokes about things like Auschwitz and Belsen and you can't make jokes about where they let the atom bombs off. But apparently you can make jokes about eternal destruction and everlasting separation from God. No, I don't think... If you take Jesus with any seriousness at all, I want to encourage you never, ever allow yourself to say something like, I've had a hell of a week. Because either you don't believe in hell or you're lying. You've not had anything like a hell of a week. The worst week you've ever had or will ever have will make hell look like a... just incomparable. And we ought not to play along with the game to try and make hell a joke. Jokes about hell, I, I don't think I've ever found any of them funny even though some of them are very clever. Because the attempt to belittle everlasting destruction and eternal separation, we oughtn't to play along with those games. Now, some of us will have done it because we've learned it from home or whatever, so I just want to encourage you to keep an eye on yourself and don't hammer other people who do it necessarily, but do perhaps keep an eye on yourself. That's if you think of hell as the Bible does. It's not an area for jokes. I used to crack jokes when I was in high school about gas chambers and could never work out why my Jewish friends never thought they were funny. You know, Randall Greenberg, Rick Grossman, Harry Laser. I, I cracked these terrific jokes about gas chambers. I'm not realising that Harry's parents both had numbers on their arms from when they were in Auschwitz. And it was just because I had never thought about the horror that I didn't do history. I did geography, so I knew how to colour in. But there's his, history I hadn't done. And so I would crack jokes. And it was only when I did a little bit of reading as I got increasingly fascinated by history, I began with, that was a really sick period. No wonder they didn't think it was funny. I just didn't know what I was talking about. Hell. This is what it's talking about here. This is what will come for people when Jesus Christ returns. For many people, it will be a day of unspeakable terror. According to the teaching of Jesus, hell is real. And hell is fair. And it's final. And it's fierce and you ought to be frightened. It's a, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible reality. It's just. I've got time to look at all that now. I can talk with you afterwards if you like. It's just and it's fair, but it's real. And for some people, they will enter at the moment Jesus Christ returns. Friends, I want to suggest to you that we allow ourselves to think about this sometimes. I don't like talking about it because I know, you know, without even knowing you all that well, there'll be many of us here who've got friends and family who don't trust Jesus, And we don't want to think about the horror of what might lie before them. It's too painful. But the problem with that is it won't go away because we don't think about it. All the people dying of AIDS, particularly overseas, won't stop because we don't like to think about it. In fact, it will continue at a much greater rate if we won't allow ourselves to feel the pain of thinking about how many millions will die of AIDS or die because of mosquitoes and all this sort of stuff. It's when we allow ourselves to think about it, feel the pain... And that will actually energise our passion to pray and to do something. That will make a difference. So we do need sometimes to actually allow ourselves to think about this. All right, that's enough time for the moment. Friends, uh, verse 10 and then we'll close. The real primary focus of Jesus' coming is not so that he may inflict vengeance. He will do that, as it were, on the way. He will overthrow the enemies on the way. But the real purpose is... It's because he wants to complete the relationship he's begun with us. That new life that began when we heard the apostolic gospel and when God did his work in our lives and that continued as we learned to trust and to grow in love and to know him. 
Look at verse 10. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marvelled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns? He will be glorified by his saints. We will see him. We already glorify him. We already seek to honour him. We will be amazed at how beautiful, how powerful, how loving, how majestic Jesus Christ is. We know a little bit, we worship already, but when you see him as he is, then we'll begin to worship him as he deserves. And it will be a great day when we glorify him, when we honour him, and we will marvel at him. I just want to think, when was the last time you marvelled at anything or anyone? Well, you just went, wow, that is just... I can barely take in how magnificent that is, or perhaps sadly how, how evil something is. But it kind of almost confuses your mind. You just can't get a handle on it because it's so big, so majestic, so marvellous. That is what you will do when Jesus returns. If he returns, you know, in the next few minutes or sometime later today, you'll have a deep, abiding experience of marvel when we see him. And uh, we will... You won't need someone out the front to say, come on, let's sing this song as if we really believe it. Come on. We can, we can do better than that. You, know, you won't have Gabriel saying, come on! Uh, left-hand side there, you've been a bit slack. Right? Uh, <laughs> smile if you believe it. You know, we will be falling on our faces and standing up and dancing and singing and going nuts. It'll be the wildest, like the wildest, craziest, charismatic church you've ever been at. <laughs> um, and that's what it will, We will glorify him. We will marvel. You know, read the book of Revelation. They're up and down. Who knows what's going to happen next? Because he's there. The one who created the universe and the one who died for us, the one who suffered for us, he'll come and it'll be the marriage of us and our Saviour. So that's what's going to happen when he returns. That's where we're heading. And as you walk around the university, you can't probably do this all the time, but sometimes allow yourselves to think that every single person we see or meet will be part of this experience. One way or the other, people will stand before Jesus and they'll either cry out to hide or it'll be an experience of marvel and unbelievable joy. That's where we're all heading. So where is the world heading? It's heading to Jesus. Not to the big chill or the big crunch or the big bounce or any other theory, but it's heading to Jesus. That's where we're going. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, I think, is, out, is typed in your outline, where the apostle describes what happened when these guys became Christians. And he speaks about a number of things. He said, and to wait... For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. You see that again, that picture that in the head of us is this day of justice and wrath. And Christians are described as those who wait. One of the distinguishing marks of you are a healthy Christian is you're a person who's waiting for something. Great blessings now, but you understand that the best things and the most important things are still to come. We are people who wait. And what we wait for is for, is for him the return of Jesus. Now what this does to your perspective on life is very dangerous. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll become so caught up in obviously religious stuff that you won't work. In fact, in chapter 3 we're going to look at one of the problems with this church that Paul is so excited about, it's still quite fragile, they've got problems about understanding the Christian view of work. Some of the guys have stopped working and it seems that they've stopped working because of this. And they're saying, no, 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 that's not the way forward. Look, what does it mean to be people who wait, who realise that in the end the world as we see it is not the way it's always going to be? 
The power structures that are, that are in charge here are only in charge for a moment. They don't have ultimate control over your happiness or your life. And that's what the trouble with this teaching about the return of Jesus, if you're an authoritarian dictator, it says to people, mate, you may be in charge now, but in the twinkling of an eye, the judge is at the door, he may come in. And then the first will be last and the last will be first. And the oppressors will be torn down from their throne. So ultimately it just makes us dangerously irreverent to that which is sacred in any culture. We're not forbidden to preach it in Australia. I think we are encouraged to forget it and to not let it be a major part of our thinking, to just get on with the here and now. And the here and now is great and important, but we are to be a people who are waiting for Jesus to return. And over the next few weeks we'll look at some of the aspects of that. Let me read you from the end of a great book. It's the longest book I've ever read, longest non-fiction book. I've, in fact, I don't read books this long of non-fiction. I got to the third one of Harry Potter and refused to read any more on principle because <laughs> no kid's book should be as long as the fourth one is. <laughs> but I made a public statement that I would read this book one time in, in, in the morning congregation of Barney, not realising how long it was. I'd seen my dad's one that was about this big. I think it was a Reader's Digest condensed version. So when I got it for Christmas, I was appalled. <laughs> But I'd said I'd read it, so I did. And um, it took me a while. <laughs> but let me read you the last line, which, by the way, won't ruin it for you if you want to read it, because it's worth reading. Um, but here is, here's the last line. My dearest, said Valentine, has the Count not told us that all human wisdom is contained in these two words? Wait and hope. That's a huge statement. Has not the Count taught us that all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. Now you can read 1,243 pages to get that, or you can read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 <laughs> and realise that a perspective on the future and waiting for the return of Jesus makes a massive difference to our life. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll uh, fill that out. Let me pray and then we'll go for whatever. Lord, we thank you that you've given to us great promises about what you will do in the future. Master, you know it's hard for us to live well in the moment and to care and to love and to serve and at the same time to keep in mind that on a day just like today you will return and countless numbers of people will enter hell forever and a number too great to be numbered will enter into glory forever. We pray, our God, that you would remind us of these great truths and we would be a people who wait joyfully and who serve with excellence until that moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Ian. Uh, Ian will be back next week. Uh, we'll be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 then. Uh, just a quick reminder before we go about membership. Uh, it would be great if you're a Christian person uh, and if you uh, sort of agree with what the EU is doing and would like to be a part of that uh, proclamation of Christ's Lordship to this university, uh, then I invite you to become an EU member. Uh, to do that, just fill out your details on this form. Uh, if you weren't a member last year, then you'll need someone to nominate you. You can come down and see me if you'd like me to do that. Uh, just drop them in the bucket on the way out. Afternoon tea's just down here. It'd be helpful if everyone could leave via this door. Just the next lecture comes in up there and it's just a lot smoother. Thanks a lot. See ya.